Good morning, everyone. Trust that you had a great Christmas with family and friends, and you're uh, excited to be here this morning to worship our God together. I was sitting there debating <laughs> to bring my jacket, leave my jacket on or not, to come and preach this, preach this morning. And I rem- remembered uh, when preaching from Apostle Paul, how he suffered for Christ, and <laughs> I was kind of uh, laughing at myself. And telling myself not to be a wimp and uh, just go ahead and preach the word. Um, you guys might have noticed my Bible the past few weeks. Um, I went to Pastor Montoya's church during my sabbatical and had a great time worshiping with the saints there. And after the service, Montoya and I and his wife, Fabia, and my wife had an opportunity to fellowship in Christ together. And I noticed that all the men of the church were carrying these thick, big Bibles. And I had my little thin line. I'm not, you know, telling anybody. I just say for me, I was carrying my little thin line Bible, a miniature size, convenient. And Montoya was carrying his thick, like, Rari study Bible. And I felt like a spiritual wimp standing next to him. I felt kind of inadequate as a man of God. And it impressed me just how they were um, demonstrating their com- commitment to the Word of God. And then for Christmas, Joe Jung got me this little... 10-pound uh, ESV study Bibles, so I thought, well, God's telling me something. I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. I'm going to study the Bible and exercise at the same time. <laughs> it's like a weight fest. Uh, with every step, I'm going to lose more calories, and I'm going to carry this thing around. And so I told Bob about this, how I was really convicted by these men who were carrying these big Bibles. And Bob was saying, well, James, uh, you know, it might be because as you get older, your eyesight gets worse. I have a harder time reading these smaller Bibles. That's why they're carrying these big Bibles. I was like, I wasn't really encouraged by that, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm going to get older sooner or later, so I may as well start, start now. Um, so, last Sunday of 2008, and I'm kind of crawling to the finish line. Am I Mike okay? I'm crawling to the finish line here. Uh, last Sunday was my first Sunday back, and uh, my wife and I, were not in mid-season form. We're physically still a week from the sabbatical. We were wiped out after last weekend. After the Christmas concert and after Sunday service and communion, we got home, and I think we woke up around Thursday. <laughs> I think we're still half asleep. It was so, and we're so behind. Now, some of you got our Christmas cards. Some of you haven't. If you didn't get one, it's not because we forgot about you or we don't care or love you. It's because we have four kids. That's why. <laughs> so we have your Christmas cards today with us or still in our garage. Okay, it's with, with us. And we'll get it to you by end of next year. Right? Sometime in the next 52 weeks, we'll get it to you. And uh, it'll be like a good like reminder of the way we used to be if you get it too late. So I wanted to get that in there. So for our last Sunday, I wanted to uh, get back to our study in 2 Timothy. Um, I knew I was in trouble when some of you couldn't remember what book we were studying. <laughs> I mean, I think you were trying to be encouraging, but you were, was it 2 Corinthians or Ephesians? And it really convicted me that I need to uh, set a good pattern of preaching the word. So back to 2 Timothy. If you open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and if we're going to um, rightly study this book for at least through the month of January, early part of January, 
we need to do uh, quite a bit of uh, review work, background work. So most of our time today will be spent on review. It might be review for most of you. For some of you, it might be new. Um, but for all of us, it will be fresh because it is the Scriptures. It is God's living and active Word that powerfully convicts believers, builds us up, empowers us, reveals to us the glory of the cross of Christ before the believer's eyes. So, no matter how many times we've studied this passage, chapter, this sermon, regardless, because our situation is fresh, because the Holy Spirit is here with us, and God's Word is alive, it'll be fresh to each of us. Just a reminder that this is Paul's last letter. He was written, it was written while he was imprisoned in Rome around A.D. 64. There are many letters that are called prison letters, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon. But those aren't uh, prison letters. Those are wrongly labeled. Those are more like house arrest letters, like uh, Madoff. What's his first name? Bernard. Bernard Madoff. He's in house arrest. He got off... $50 billion Ponzi scheme, right? He lost 50, not dollars, or 50,000, 50, $50 billion he got arrested. All these foundations, charities went bankrupt because of him. And he posted bail of $10 million. And he's at home right now. And uh, so if you were to write a letter, he's not in jail. He's in house arrest. So Philemon, Philippians, I'm not saying Paul's the same thing. But... Um, he was in a much different circumstance writing those letters. Here in Second Timothy, he's in a dungeon. He's in a prison, a Roman prison. You know, Roman prison, going to jail in America is different than going to jail like in Mexico or the Philippines or in the Middle East. Likewise, a jail in first century Rome is far different than jail 21st century U.S. We've got to have a paradigm shift in our understanding of what prison is like. He's in a dungeon. He's awaiting execution. He is um, on the lowest strata of uh, the socioeconomic ladder, the society in Rome. And he's chained to the wall like a common criminal. And his life is coming to an end. His ministry is definitely coming to an end. Uh, it's the last round of what has, become, what has been a long and arduous fight. He has suffered from the beginning of his ministry. And so he ends his life in suffering as well. He suffered so much so, Galatians 6.17 says, that he bears in his marks the sufferings of Christ, the marks of Jesus Christ. So he suffered emotionally, spiritually, and he suffered physically. He is now an aged man, over 60 years old. Body is definitely showing its age. His strength is ebbing away. And he does not, yet he does not have the honor befitting a godly older man. A man like him should be treated with much respect and reverence and honor. Great esteem should be accorded to him. He is a gift, not just to everyone that he meets, not just to the Roman Empire. He is a gift to 
the world, give to Christianity, give to each and every one of us. We owe a great debt of gratitude to this man. And yet he is treated like a common criminal with contempt and scorn. We have to uh, remind ourselves that Paul was a real person. He's in a real situation. This is a real letter. This is not fabricated. It's not mythology. It's not a fiction, fictional account for dramatic effect. This is real. He was in jail. He was all alone, awaiting execution. He was writing this letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, whom he will never see again. And yet, as we read this letter and consider its first passage, we are amazed to find that the first word out of Paul's mouth after his greetings to Timothy is the word thanks. It's the word gratitude. It's the word gratitude. The first word is karin. Gratitude. I have. He's not lamenting the unjust and cruel treatment that he's experiencing. He's not bemoaning the execution that will soon, soon come to him. His thoughts were on the gospel. Thoughts were on God's sovereignty, God's love and kindness. And the memories of his beloved son, this faith, Timothy. So he is filled with thanks, so he begins the letter with thanks. Now, some of us who are more older and more jaded, you know, by life, disillusioned by uh, the cold, hard facts of real life, read this and say, oh, he's putting on an act. He's not, he's being disingenuous. You know, he's putting on the apostle hat. You know, he's being a professional pastor. He is saying what is expected of him. This is not true. This is not in his heart. Some of us, I'm thinking, are, are saying this is not possible. I bet inside he's bitter. He's full of resentment, anger, venom. He's angry at the guards, angry at the Roman government. He's angry at Timothy. He's angry at the Christian church. And I bet he's angry at God. I bet inside he's cursing God because of his current situation. It is impossible for someone in that circumstance to be thankful. Well, we find how Paul was able to be thankful in this difficult circumstance in the first passage of 2 Timothy chapter 1. We find by his writings, inspired by the Holy Spirit, how Paul was able to have a heart of gratitude inside his prison cell. He received God's grace through means ordained by God through the scriptures. Uh, He employed uh, means of grace. Means of grace. Uh, God gives us grace through uh, instruments. um, Through a medium. God doesn't grant us grace. Uh, he, He zaps us. 
you know, electricity or some kind of a supernatural empowerment. That is not how God gives us grace. God has ordained ways in which He gives Christians um, grace. You know, the, the root meaning is gift or, or undeserved favor or spiritual endowment, spiritual power, spiritual gift. Instruments of grace. Grace is that free keeping work of God to sustain our spiritual life that leads to everlasting joy. And God gives us this grace, this capital G grace through means of grace, lower G grace. Now, no doubt there are extraordinary means of grace throughout the scriptures. Extraordinary. Um, they're not normative. And they're not always um, directly beneficial to the to ones who receive them. Uh, let me explain. Uh, Exodus 14, parting of the Red Sea. Exodus 16, manna from heaven. John chapter 6, bread and fish. Five loaves and two fish fed 5,000. 1 Kings 18, fire from heaven. Isaiah 6, seeing God's glory. All of this are extraordinary means of grace where believers experience the power of God. So imagine if you are with the Israelites and you're facing the Red Sea in front of you and the Egyptian army, the superpower of that time behind you, and you see the waters part and you walk on dry land. I am sure we would feel, you know, very good. We would feel God's power, God's grace, God's majesty. We would feel very close to God while we're walking on dry land, the middle, the middle of the Red Sea. And yet, 1 Corinthians 10 says, not every one of them was saved. It did not benefit all of them. Some of them walked across the Red Sea. They ate the spiritual food of manna, ate the same spiritual drink, the water from the rock. Yet, most of them, God was not pleased, and they were overthrown. They died in the wilderness. These extraordinary means of grace was not beneficial for everyone. It's not normative. And it's not for us. They're in the past. God has given to us um, normal, ordinary means of grace. That is available for every single Christian. These extraordinary means of grace is not available for everyone. But these normal, ordinary means of grace is available right now to you and right now to me. And we can choose to receive God's grace through these means. God has not left us without help. God has granted to us means by which we can endure through trials and experience joy and even grow through them. I mean, we can, I'm sure, count off together so many just that, that we know of. Uh, the Bible is a means of grace. Uh, singing together is a means of grace. Communion is a means of grace, right? When we get together as, as a church, 
We remember the cross of Christ, the bread and the cup. It's a means of grace. Um, ministry, serving one another is a means of grace. You, I serve you and I receive grace by serving Christians. When you serve one another, you serve the world. When you go out preaching the gospel, when you have an opportunity for a few minutes to share with your co-worker or serve him or her, you receive grace. These are all normal, ordinary means by which God grants us His sustaining grace. Now, one qualification, uh, it must be biblical. The means must be delineated in the scriptures. You can't just be arbitrary. We can't just, you know, say, I mean, it feels like it sometimes. I mean, for me, coffee sometimes feels like a means of grace. I feel spiritually despondent, discouraged, good cup of McDonald's iced coffee, and I feel a little better, right? But I can't, you know, experience does not validate truth. The Bible tells me what the means of grace is. Like dark chocolate to me, right? The Trader Joe's kind, with almonds covered with dark chocolate, Milk chocolate, not means of grace. Dark chocolate, means of grace. Or I'm trying my best not to use Lakers illustrations. Some of you guys are getting tired of them. But today I have to because, man, like Lakers beating the Celtics on Christmas Day feels like means of grace to me. And I saw the highlights, I think, at least ten times this week. Each time I felt more spiritual. (laughs) But... I'm pretty sure they're not means of grace. I'm pretty sure. Must be, must be biblical. That's, that's where our emotions deceive us. That's why we go and eat dirt rather than uh, drink God's uh, everlasting water. Where we choose to eat mud rather than honey from the honeycomb. I was telling our brother and he was telling me years ago, or playing basketball, and he says he gets he plays basketball when he gets discouraged or depressed. It's like an ego boost for him. He has a tough day at school or work. He goes 24, and he you know, schools guys left and right, and it's an ego boost for him. And he, he plays ball kind of an addiction for his own ego rather than um, anything else. I think we do that quite often. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's we're, we excel at work, we excel in relationships, we excel in some craft or some hobby, we excel in something, and so our emotions drive us toward that because we feel better afterwards. But in that, it's, it's causing us to create an idol in our hearts, we're soon be dependent upon it for our joy and satisfaction, and before we know it, we are in bondage to that that thing, to that person, to that work, and we lose a taste for the joy in Christ. Um, the Bible calls us, our hearts, away from that with the gospel. And those are fruitless joys. Those are deceptive idols. They promise joy, satisfaction, and freedom, but uh, do not deliver. There's a law of diminished return. With each time, the joy decreases. But with Christ and the gospel and the freedom, the sweetness, the joy that Christ brings increases. Um, not just till we die, even after we die. In heaven, 
It never stops increasing. The joy, the satisfaction, the sweetness that we experience with the gospel of Christ. And so with that limitless reservoir of of freedom and joy waiting for us, uh, God calls us to employ these means of grace. So here is Paul in a prison cell all by himself, employs these means of grace, and he experiences gratitude, experiences thanksgiving. The first means of grace that he employs is intercessory prayer. I remember you, verse 3, constantly in my prayers, night and day. Paul remembered Timothy in his prayers. No doubt Paul had a very strong commitment to pray. Motivated by the gospel of Christ. Seeing how the gospel is powerful. And through the gospel we, we discover that our God is a personal God. That He... His eyes are on the righteous. His ears are inclined to those who are humble. That He's a personal God. And He's interested in our, in our prayers. He inclines, He stoops low to hear what we are saying. And, and, and Paul was committed to prayer. Romans 1, 9 and 10. God is my witness that without ceasing I pray for you. Ephesians 1.16, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. Philippians 1.3-5, always in every prayer of mine, I remember you. Paul made it a point to be diligent in intercessory prayer. And through that, he received grace. And uh, it's a very common... Um, Explanation of this is a means of grace. Because when we pray for others, we take our eyes off of ourselves. Right? You know, pride comes, slavery comes, depression, anxiety, frustration, anger comes when we are fixed on ourselves. Right? Self-pity, right? You know, anger at others, judging others, ang- anger at God. These are all fruits of being self-absorbed. Right? And just, just, just fixated on ourselves and our own um, just inadequacies and incompetence and our shortcomings and our circumstances. And, and so we, we just, we're immersed in our, in our own little world and these are the fruits. But once we look at the gospel, and the, the first commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So we look at the gospel. And the second command is love others as you love yourself. So therefore, the immediate response to looking at the gospel is looking at others. And when we see others, our inclination propelled by the gospel is to pray for them. When we pray for them, we understand, wow, I'm not the only one suffering. I am. My suffering is... Like minuscule. It's not worthy of mentioning compared to the sufferings that others are experiencing right now. And you pray for them and you have a different whole vantage point because you are seeing them from the perspective of God because through the gospel. And you're reminded of God's uh, imminent uh, presence. God's personal care. God's 
benevolence, God's kindness, God's love, God's faithfulness. You see fingerprints all over that person's life through the gospel. And so after you're done praying, your heart is lifted. Right? Your heart is lifted because you employed this means of grace. You know, we, we cheat ourselves by not praying. And we cheat ourselves when we don't pray for others. We, God calls us to pray for others, not for them, but for us. Blessed are those who give. It's better to give than to receive. You are more blessed to give. So you're more blessed to give prayer than to receive prayer. So we cheat ourselves. We miss out on all this freedom of the gospel because we simply fail to uh, tear our eyes off of ourselves and look at the gospel and, and look at what the gospel points us to, fellow Christians who are suffering. So Paul employed that. Paul was filled with joy. Second means of grace was the love of fellow Christians. Here is the great apostle, spiritual giant, the apostle to the Gentiles, the mighty defender of the Christian faith. And in his prison cell, what does he remember? He remembers the tears of a younger man. Verse 4, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Now here, Paul has no false uh, masculinity. He's not a slave of his machismo, right? He's not... Uh, uh, um, he's not insecure in that way. And in that way, uh, many of us, we missed out on the means of grace. We put out a brave front. We think being a, a strong man is putting on this persona of not needing anybody. Right? I know this, you know this Marlboro man, you know. We ride alone, right? We only need horses and cows, and we don't need... Friends, we don't need human beings, and especially we don't need other men. I just need my cigarette and this hat, and I'm good, right? And we had this, like, idea of this macho, strong man, and we think that's what it is to be a man, and so me too. I don't need anybody. I'm sufficient in myself. And we look at guys that kind of like, you know, a little chummy. Oh, man, what's wrong with that guy? He's a little, you know, a little, I don't know, little something, I don't know. All right. Well, we look at Paul, and we don't see that at all. Right? Paul's alone in prison, and he says, Timothy, I remember your tears. Right? And I, um, I'm encouraged by that. I, I remember that there is someone out there that you love me. Here, I'm all alone. Demas has left me. Not only that, everyone in Asia has left me. Wow. He's all alone, right? And everybody is threatening him, calling him a false teacher. He's arrested, doomed to die alone. And he's encouraged because there is a, a fellow Christian that knows him by name, that is praying for him and loves him. Right? So how the gospel calls and helps us to experience this sweet, Fellowship, camaraderie that's based on, on God and the cross and ministry. And that's true friendship. That's true fellowship. 
it's not like fellowship, like friendship, like, oh, we like the same movie, so we're friends. We like the same kind of clothes or our hairstyle is the same or we're the same school or, you know, we both play this kind of sport and that's why we're friends. That's so, that's shallow. That works in elementary, junior high, high school, maybe college. But after college, if you hang out with your friends because you guys like the same kind of clothes, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of maturity to be had there. And after you, you grow older and older in life, you realize, wow, those aren't genuine friendships. There's really no substance to them. But Christian friendship, there is great substance because it's bonded by the cross of Christ, the death of our Lord. And now we have a common purpose to exalt and glorify Him and proclaim His gospel to the uttermost ends of the world. That's the most meaningful friendship any man, any woman can ever have in this world. And Paul experienced that, and he received grace. He received grace. And that's why, you know, Cornerstone, I mean, it's, it's special to us. It's special to us because Cornerstone is not one man to everyone else. You know, it's not the pulpit that keeps us together. It's not a personality that keeps us together. There are other pastors that are far better preachers. Right? There are other preachers, pastors, far more dynamic, charismatic, whatever, you name it. But you go to churches like that for many years and it's great. You have his books, you have his sermons on YouTube, whatever, you have his iPod, sermons on his iPod, but there is a limit to how much that you receive a means of grace through that. The Bible says it's not one man to all others. The Bible says it's one another's. At the church, we strengthen each other. We serve one another. And great means of grace that Christians can benefit from is the means of grace of a fellow Christian caring for them, loving them, remembering them, laughing with them, and also crying and crying with them and crying for them. That kind of fellowship is tremendously gratifying, tremendously sweet, and and helps us to grow in grace. And I think that's one of the reasons why people come here for various reasons. Uh, but they stay largely, 99.9%, right? Because, oh, these people see me and they're not looking through me. They're looking at me. I'm not a means to an end. I'm not just um, keeping this chair occupied. This is not a movie theater mentality where after amen, final prayer, we all walk out the door kind of pass each other like shadows. No, we're really here for one another. And they're a means of grace to me and I'm a means of grace to them as we love one another in Christ. We're all trying to put away this false pride, false macho attitude, independent mindset, and we're really striving to love one another. So third, first is prayer. Second is love. Third is the sincere faith of fellow Christians. The sincere faith of fellow Christians. Just the sight of that is the means of grace. It's the glimpse of someone living out the Christian faith. It can be such a tremendous inspiration to our hearts as we pursue the cross. 
Uh, Paul said to Timothy, I remember, I am reminded of your sincere faith. He is immersed in a place where he's surrounded by people with disingenuous faith, um, hypocritical faith, hypocrites. They say one thing and do another. He is surrounded by such people. And that can definitely uh, drown someone and, and discourage them. But Paul, his heart is lifted because he remembers Timothy's grandmother, Eunice, and his mom, Lois, and Timothy, and their sincere faith. And that was a source, it's a means of grace to Paul. He experienced firsthand how uh, a glimpse of someone else's faith encouraged him. True faith, the fellow Christians, is a source of immeasurable encouragement and strength. So again, you you cheat yourself if you don't uh, reveal yourself and initiate relationships with fellow Christians. You're the one missing out. I know relationships are difficult. I know friendships are hard. You have to be vulnerable. You have to take risks. You have to kind of put your heart out there. And it might get trampled on nine times before someone, you know, really responds in kind. You know, one out of ten. And so you don't want to bother with that process. You'd rather just kind of go out the Christian life alone. But you know what? You cheat yourself. Because having a glimpse of someone else living out the Christian life, um, really um, sacrificing, obeying God even when it hurts, uh, seeking after the cross and experiencing humility and integrity and showing dignity in such ways, it's worth all of the risk that you ever take in your relationships. It's worth all of that and a hundred times more. All the times your heart gets trampled on and used by people, it's worth it for that one glimpse. It's a great means of grace. So Paul, I'm sorry about this, my, my fault. It's not my fault. Um, so Paul employed these three means and he experienced so much grace. And then in verse 9, 9 and 10, um, he, uh, he gives us um, the ultimate means of grace, the supercharged means of grace. Up until now, until verse 8, there are no commands. Starting with verse 8, Paul gives us five, Paul gives Timothy and to us five commands. We had studied the first two, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor do not nor be ashamed of me as prisoner. The third command is share in suffering. Join with me in suffering for the gospel. That's the third command that Paul gives to Timothy and to us. And then the latter part of verse eight, with the last five words, Paul gives the ultimate means of grace by the power of God. Paul's command here is not to merely suffer for the gospel. 
He tells us how we are to suffer for the gospel. He tells us why we are to suffer for the gospel. We are to suffer for the gospel, the power of God, which is the gospel, not by the by one's own strength. Not depending on your own power. Not out of mere uh, effort, discipline, out of personal morality. If, if, if any of you have tried this, uh, if any of you um, have experienced this, you know what that produces. Right. You know what that produces. Um, so I'll just share this here. In last week, I, I talked about that illustration from Searching for Bobby Fisher. You guys remember that? If you were here, I hope you remember that. Um, young boy, chess player, genius, prodigy, beats everybody. He goes on a losing streak. His dad gets angry, yells at him. Mom and dad are arguing in, 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 at home. And dad says... Um, he's just afraid of losing. So he's afraid. Once he gets over that fear, he'll be back on a winning streak. And the mom says, he's not afraid of losing. He's afraid of losing you. You're putting too much pressure on him to win. You're not just loving him. And she says, how many boys, when they're playing baseball, go to the batter's box and they're afraid of losing their father's love if they strike out. And the dad says, all of them. Every single boy that plays Little League, they go in that batter's box, and uh, they're afraid of losing their father's love. I think there's a parallel. I drew that parallel for the Christian life that many of us live in the performance ethic in our relationship with God. So I would say there might be three, three kinds of people here in this room this morning. Three kinds of people. To kind of draw that analogy, stretch it further. There's some of you in this room this week, you just struck out like crazy. Your batting average is like .02 or something. You had a horrible week. Barely spent any time in the Word. Barely prayed. In fact, uh, you struck out on purpose. You outright sinned against God. Some of you are, are afraid of losing God's love. Some of you somehow think you disappointed God. God is not happy with you. God is not pleased with you. You've taken your eyes off the gospel, your eyes on yourself. And some of you have um, distanced yourself out of pride in that way. Maybe a few of you are proud. You're bitter. You're angry. You sinned against God and you don't care. Right? And you're proud. You're not ashamed at all of your sins. Another group of you maybe, there's a second group where you, you're here and you had a real good week. You hit some singles, you hit some doubles, maybe you hit some home runs this week. I mean, you are just on your game, and as a Christian, you're, you're doing well. So you're happy today, you're singing extra loud, 
You know, you're walking a little bit taller than usual. You're kind of walking with a swagger. And so you're proud. So you're looking down at others. You're evaluating others and comparing yourself with others. You're boasting in your heart. You see how both groups, um, because of pride, God is against them. God is against the one who is proud in his sins. And God is against the one who is proud in his righteousness. Christians are the only ones where we repent of our sins and repent also of our damnable good works. Does that make sense? Religious people only repent of sins. Christians repent of our sins and all our righteous things we did out of pride, out of morality, out of personal ego or good works. That's what Paul said in Philippians 3. His resume, all his religious achievements. He said, Scubalon, rubbish, I repent. They are nothing. They are excrement. The third group are the ones who, uh, they sinned this week. They struck out several times. But because of the gospel, they're humble. They're not going to beat themselves over for because of a few sins because the gospel tells them that they are the worst of all sinners. The gospel reveals to them that they killed God's only son. So are they now going to beat themselves up because uh, they cussed a few times? right? Because they told some lies? Are they going to be now pride because they didn't? They failed to read the Bible or pray? The gospel says that they killed God's son. So because of the gospel, they're already low. And they also had some hits, also had some home runs. But they're not walking with a swagger. Right? They're not strutting. They're not holding themselves highly. They're humble because of the gospel. The gospel tells them that they're saved not by works, but by grace alone, what Christ did. And for that group, God is for you. God is on your side. Because you're motivated by the gospel, not by pride and sin, or the pride of good works. I think that's what Paul is saying here. Is it Timothy? I think it's easy for Christians to suffer um, out of pride. To do ministry out of ego. To serve God and do Christian things driven by their personal morality, their personal standard of diligence. And it causes them to, uh, when they go through suffering, judge others. You know, I'm, I'm in this prison and they're in palaces. I am suffering for Christ and they're soaking it in. I'm experiencing hardships for Christ. I'm ministering so hard, doing, investing so much time and effort. And yet these Christians... They're doing so little for God. Christians can easily uh, 
get angry at God, get angry at the world, even get angry at themselves, hate themselves. When you suffer out of pride and when you fall short, when you don't um, do well as you think you should, you beat yourself up and you hate yourself. Paul says, Join me in suffering for the gospel. But make sure, Timothy, that you suffer by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. Make sure that your um, internal motivational structure, your heart, what's driving you is the gospel and not yourself. That's so important because the gospel humbles, humbles us in ways that, and that's why it's so difficult for us to be gospel-centered. Because gospel excludes boasting. Whether it's salvation, whether it's sanctification, whether it's surf, suffering or ministry, it prevents us, it excludes boasting. And all of us, we want to boast. Every morning, the default state of our hearts is we want to boast in ourselves. We want an opportunity to gloat over our achievements, over what we have done. But when it's the gospel, we can't boast. That's why it's so hard to be gospel-centered. So if I'm preaching a good sermon, there's a part of me where I want to boast. Oh, man, James, you studied. You had insight. Man, that, that application, that joke, man, like... Little part of me like wants to boast, but if I preach the gospel, I can't boast in anything because the gospel did everything. I mean, you need to apply for yourself, whether you are a, a teacher or an accountant or a wife or a husband, a mom or dad, or you're in ministry or serving the church or anything. You need to apply how there is such an insatiable desire to boast in yourself. And so you rather do things on your, on your own flesh, by your own power. Because then at the end, you can boast a little bit for what you have done and the results. But you know, if you do it by the gospel, motivated by the gospel alone, you can't boast. You can't say, I'm a good person, I'm a hard worker, I'm a good person. I'm a good father, I'm a good mom, I'm a good wife, good husband, good student. You can't say any of those things. All I can say is, glory be to God. But that, that is so important because that's what frees us, that's what liberates us. Motivated by our ego. I'll talk about this in weeks to come, but that's Slavery. That results again in anger at God. You're going to hate yourself. You're going to be frustrated in the church, frustrated at your work, frustrated with your spouse, angry at your children. Right? You're going to be just self, full of self-pity, of, uh, obsessed with yourself. It's uh, idol worship at its worst when the idol is yourself. But when you do it with the power, in the power of God, gospel, there's no boasting but there's all this grace, all this freedom, right? all this joy. Because the gospel is what motivates 
nothing else. So perhaps as Christians, we focus on the wrong uh, clause there. We focus on suffering, uh, join with Paul in suffering, but we don't emphasize by the power of God. We need to put equal weight, or maybe a little more attention, knowing the propensity of our hearts, the pride of our hearts, more attention to, by the power of God, how we ought to suffer, why we ought to live for Christ, why we ought to do the things we do as Christians. Make sure it's by the power of God to close our time. How do we do this? I just, you know, it's so simple. It's just to call to mind the gospel and believe it. Right? To to believe the gospel. Everyone's saying, what do you mean? I believe the gospel. James, I'm a Christian. I know, I'm a Christian too, right? We're all Christians here. But it's wholly a different thing to believe in the gospel in terms of your motivations, right? Um... It's wholly different. Cheesy uh, illustration. Um, offering basket was being passed down. And I think one of the popular evangelists, he felt like he needed to give something because people are watching him. He, he, he knew that he had a $5 bill in his pocket. He took it out and put the $5 bill in the offering plate. And as soon as he let go, he realized it was a 20 And then, But it was too late. The basket was going down and he couldn't grab it again and you know, <laughs> change it. So he had to let the 20 go. And then he realized, well, to God, that was a 5, not a 20. Right? Because his motivation was to give a 5. doesn't matter what he gave. His motivation determines the value before God. Right? His motivation determines. Likewise, our motivation determines. And so it's easy as Christians not to call to mind the gospel and to give what is in our hearts, or serve, or, or, or help, or minister, or suffer, whatever we do, our, ten, propens, our, our propensity is to leave the gospel out and just do it by our own strength. Do it by our own, own discipline, our own morality, our own conscientiousness, rather than calling to mind what the gospel is. And believing that and having that be the fuel, uh, the, the impulse, the affections that drive all that we do. Try that this week. I mean, try that even today, you know, as we go to fellowship. Like, am I talking to this person because I ought to, because Pastor James said about that second means of grace. Right? Oh, I should because I don't, I don't want people. I don't want people to think I'm a you know mean person, or I don't want people to think I'm unfriendly, or oh, I should because I'm a leader, or oh, people expect that of me. See, those are all like wrong motivation. It's all pride. That's all idolatry. Try it. Wow, the gospel. I was an enemy of God. God reached out to me, and He loved me, and He saved me, forgave me of all my sins. And so that gospel tells me my first instinct in response is to love one another. Right? Right? Try, and so call to mind and believe the gospel and then consider how that changes your fellowship. 
how that changes, transforms your time with fellow Christians. If you experience that, apply that at work. Apply that toward your children. Apply that towards doing dishes for your husbands, right? Or changing diapers for your moms. Right? Apply that towards your, your studies. Apply that towards suffering for Christ. They will employ, um, you know, this ultimate means of grace. Where all these other means of grace are dependent upon the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Christ that has opened our eyes and yet continues to open our eyes to see how wonderful you are, how great a gift you have given to us in Christ. It is not just freedom from sin, but it is also freedom from idolatry, freedom from ourselves freedom from our propensity to worship wrong things, worship created things instead of the Creator. Lord, we pray that as we gaze upon the cross, we would experience more and more the freedom that it brings, freedom from the bondage that our, our sinful, idolatrous hearts bring, bring, bring to us. And you would moved by the ravishing power of the gospel, cause us to uh, run to you, run to the cross, and delight and savor all the fruits that are produced on that, on that hill of Calvary. We uh, thank you for the Apostle Paul. Lord, though he was rejected by man, hated, reviled, and, and killed, we esteem him. We honor him. We thank you for him. And we thank you for the inspired scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit through this man given to us. Help us to uh, have our minds renewed by its truth so that we might uh, apprehend the gospel in a clearer way and have it be the source of all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.